1: Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Catherine Ashton whose new book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy, is published this week by Ellington Thompson. Catherine Ashton served as the European Union's first high representative for foreign affairs and security policy between 2009 and 2014. On behalf of the UN Security Council, she coordinated negotiations that resulted in the nuclear program agreement with Iran. Previously, she was European Commissioner for Trade, served in the British government as a minister in the departments of education and justice and led Parliament's upper house. Today, she is distinguished fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington and a senior advisor to humanitarian dialogue in Geneva. This new book is a memoir of her years as high representative or HRVP when she put together the European External Action Service and at the same time dealt with war and peace in Libya and Ukraine regime change in Egypt, and delicate negotiations between Serbia and Kosovo. She writes, success is rarely the effect of one moment, but of thousands of interlocking actions over a sustained period. And tiny details, especially in difficult negotiations, can make the difference between success and failure, even if they seem arbitrary or inconsequential. Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Tim
1: well can we start with the why and how of this book it's been eight years since you left brussels uh so that's the why why did you decide to write the book now and on the how you talk about in the book how how you wrote it you you start with uh description you started with descriptions to your husband who was a very well-known former journalist can you tell us more about the process and, and how long it took so the why
0: was a combination of Two or three things tim the first was that because of the process which i'll talk about i had 39 stories i had effectively a sort of wealth of information that when i look back on it reminded me of those events and times and gave me a level of detail that i'd forgotten so i was interested to see what i could do with that information and Over the years, people had asked me to tell the story of what it was like to, for example, to be in Egypt during the Arab Spring, to be dealing with the Ukraine crisis as it first began, Mm -hmm. to be dealing with piracy off the coast of Somalia, or indeed to just be coordinating the 28 EU member states and their foreign policies. And when I told the stories, people would often say, you should write this down. So the notability of the lockdown experience was that I had the time to do that and to do it properly. Mm. How I did it was I didn't keep a diary, but my husband, as you say, was a journalist. Uh, he would simply sit down with me when I came back from usually quite a long trip and a difficult trip. And he would just, over a cup of coffee, interview me, mm. record it, and then at the end of my time in office, he presented me with a tape recorder and said, there you go. You have a history now of events that you were part of.
1: And, and did, did you then just sit down and write them up and then hone them down? Because it's actually quite a tight book. It's it's just over 200, 230 pages. Um, and, and how long did that take you?
0: So I had a good editor, which, as you know, can be a, an incredibly important part of the process but I wanted to tell just a few of the stories, not everything, because I wanted to tell stories that I thought also gave examples of some of the things that I learned along the way. And to take um, the, the reader through the experience over those five years of different events, some of which happened roughly around the same time. Some were immediate crises, others, like, for example, the Iran talks, took years. And so you've got this sense, I hope, of different experiences often going on at the same time, but in a sense trying to tackle different elements of the job of foreign policy.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, uh, because I'm a bit of a process nerd, I'll I'll begin with a couple of process questions. Um, the, the, The first chapter covers your nominations, first as trade commissioner, then as HRVP. And I'd I'd actually forgotten how last minute they seemed, even from the outside, but it's fascinating to read from the inside. Can you talk us through that, that almost like an ambush for you?
0: Yeah, it didn't feel like an ambush. It was more that, you know, if if you have a life where politics is part of it, there is a degree to which you agree to serve and you serve in the capacity that you're asked to serve. And it's not a a kind of negotiation in that sense. Mm. I know for some people in politics, it is a negotiation. They have the power to negotiate, if you like. But for me, it it was much more about decisions being taken, that I was the right person or the right fit at that moment. And not being sure that was true, but being um, certain that I, I wanted to be in public service and this was the opportunity being presented. So in both cases, um, I found myself becoming the Trade Commissioner and then uh, the High Representative without my seeking the role or thinking that that would be a conceivable possibility
1: and when you first went to brussels you you describe how you took um james morrison from the foreign office with you H- how much time did you have to put a whole team together and and even even just to read in on the subjects and, and and really get to know the dossiers
0: well in the book there's a couple of sort of strange coincidences that happen one is that i was in brussels just before i became trade commissioner and from the outside it must have looked as if i was setting myself up for the job, but I really wasn't. I had absolutely no idea that several days later I would find myself going back for what turned out to be six years. James was someone I'd worked very closely with when we were taking legislation through the House of Lords, in fact, the Lisbon Treaty, which created the role of High representative. And then I ran into him in Brussels where he was getting ready to become the next head of office for the next commissioner. Who At that point was unknown. It turned out to be me. And so he was heading to Brussels for his role, as I turned out to be heading to Brussels for my own role. When I got there originally, I inherited the team that Peter Mandelson had, had, who were incredibly talented, led by now Sir Julian King, um, who's a very eminent uh, official and became, in fact, the last British commissioner to serve um, prior to are leaving the European Union. So I had an original team in place. The big challenge came a year later when we were to set up the new external action service because this was a combination of bringing together officials from the different parts of the European Union, the different institutions, in the creation of a sort of quasi-institution for the first time in 50 years. That literally meant moving people from, I think it was 12 buildings into one. And then adding into that member states, diplomats who were going to help form the basis of the external action service along with their colleagues from in the institutions. That was a much bigger and, and very challenging job. Well,
1: and you describe in the book that when you got the job, um, you lay awake at night and you felt no exhilaration and you said you were more aware than any, anyone that you had few obvious credentials and lukewarm support. It, funnily enough, I mean, in retrospect, even sceptics admit how effective you were, especially in the Serbian, Kosovan and the Iranian uh, negotiations. Even at the time, did part of you suspect you had it in you, maybe from your role in, in brokering the, the Lisbon Treaty negotiations?
0: I remember talking to someone in Brussels and saying, you know, I'm really not sure I can do this. And they someone who knew me and they said, well, you know, break it down. The first thing is about creating an organisation. And I've always been involved in organisations. I've chaired lots of voluntary organisations. I've been involved in regenerating others. And so the creation of a new organisation, particularly, by the way, with James, who carried a huge amount of the burden of that particular part of the job um, was was something that I could see how to do that. The other part of it was about the skill set, which I'd used in the past. Getting agreement between 28 member states, between the commissioners, and of course the European Parliament, was going to require lots of negotiations, really, uh, working out... The, the art of the possible and all that. And having worked in Parliament in the House of Lords, where I never had more than 22% of the vote, and therefore everything was a negotiation or trying to work out the possibilities. And then before that, working in the health service, where we were merging hospitals and changing the way the health service operated, as I was chair of a health authority, and so on, there were bits of my uh, role that I could see I could do. The big part was how far the building of a common foreign policy would be possible in the context of 28 countries who all had their own foreign ministers. And frankly, for whom this was not necessarily what they would have done. This was a treaty that was 10 years in the making and a job that was 10 years in the making, and most of the people who originated the ideas had long left the stage, leaving others for whom perhaps this would not have been where they would go. So there were things I could do, I was sure of that, but there were lots of things that I was not at all confident.
1: Well, uh, onto the substance of the uh, of the policy in the book, you, you break down the major issues by chapter, but several of them overlap. And in the first chapters, you cover the response to the Somalian piracy, disaster relief in Haiti and Japan. And a few things jumped out at me in those chapters. Uh, The first was how important for domestic, as in Brussels purposes, was the famous photo of you holding a child in Haiti. And the other was the extreme caution that went into the helicopter attack on the empty pirate boats and the description of the standoffishness between the development and the, the military staffs. Could you talk us through those and how important those uh, um, episodes were?
0: There is a phrase, isn't there, that, a th- you know, a, a picture paints a thousand words. Yeah. And um, a photograph is something that can send a message much more quickly and effectively than a long screen that you write that very few people will probably read. And... The challenge of of Haiti for me was very simply that when the earthquakes happened uh, and it was devastating in Port-au-Prince, 95% of buildings destroyed, this poverty-stricken country um, was in ruins. The question was who went and who went when? And for me, the people who needed to go immediately were the people who were going to be able to help So these were the development teams. These were the uh, people who could move rubble, people who could rescue, people who could mend broken bones, the doctors, the nurses, the firefighters, the people who could make a big difference. But there's always a big push for what you might call the kind of photo on the ground to show that you're active and engaged. And that was a really challenging first lesson for me because I took what the UN asked, which was, please don't come. They said, come when you can do something. And what my job was going to be, was going to be about the longer term. We sent as much support and help as we could. And I actually went, I think it was three and a half, four weeks later. But there was a lot of criticism that I hadn't gone immediately. And a lot of thanks from the organizations when I got there that I hadn't gone immediately. And the photograph is of a little boy who's hugging me and we're sitting in a tent in Port-au-Prince. He's there with his family and I've taken with me lots of toys and games for the children because everyone knows that in a disaster the things that children need are things that are just going to entertain them or give them a little bit of comfort Mm. of some kind. And he's hugging me and I'm looking down at him. And it became the kind of defining photograph. Um, actually, he wasn't he wasn't unhappy. He'd just been a bit scared by a, the photographer coming close and so had just grabbed me instinctively. And I often show people the photograph afterwards where he's smiling to show that we, we weren't capturing a moment where a child was in distress, which I probably wouldn't have wanted to catch on film. We were just capturing a moment when he kind of jumped. But it was an important photograph, because it was me in the middle of this crisis with a child. And I suppose it, for many people, showed what this was all about, that Europe was there, I was there, and that we were trying to help. In the context of of, of that, the relationship between the military staff and the staff who dealt with emergencies was an interesting one. You see, for a lot of emergency staff, the people who go in immediately, there is a crisis. They need to be seen to be impartial. The last thing they can afford is to be connected to anything, especially anything military. So in Brussels, on two sides of the street, you had grown up a very, very good immediate response crisis team, brilliant at what they did. And across the road, we had military representatives who had the capacity to mobilise military equipment. But, of course, they didn't naturally work together for the reasons uh, given. And so bringing them together was important in the context, particularly of the earthquake, because what the military had were hospital ships, heavy moving equipment, the roads were impassable, they were able to helicopter people off Haiti, and look after them on ships that were specifically designed. They had operating theatres, they had medical staff, they had dentists, they had psychiatrists, they had everybody that was needed. And getting that coordination and collaboration at Brussels was really important to ensuring that we use our resources as effectively as we could. But when it comes to the decision that we took to destroy the boats on the beach in Somalia, just before the, what you might call the piracy season got going because parts of the year it's too difficult with the weather, but there is very definitely a season when particularly young men would set off on, in small boats to try and take one of the trade ships, one of the ships that was in the area. And we decided to try and destroy those so they would be unseaworthy. And it was a difficult decision because we had to be as sure as we possibly could be that there was nobody going to be injured or worse in doing that. But one of the things about European operations is all nations must agree. Even if they don't all participate in it, if it's an EU operation, it is unanimously agreed operation by all the countries concerned. And for some, this was changing the rules of engagement, which was defensive. It was about prevention of piracy at sea. It was about trying to support ships in trouble, but it wasn't about taking a a deliberate act of aggression, if you like, uh, to destroy the boats. And so that was quite a move, quite a complicated maneuver dealt with brilliantly by the military who explained to them precisely what would happen, but in the context of countries who have very different views and stances when it comes to military operations. So it took a while to do. It was successful and it did make a big difference. Do you think
1: that, sorry, do you, do you think that would be different now, partly due to that experience and partly due to the change of um, – thinking since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine?
0: I think there's a difference between the supply of military equipment, which is something that the EU is very positive about and member states are contributing. I mean, the EU itself doesn't have military equipment. It has the ability to buy military equipment and to give money to do that. But essentially that is different to actually doing something yourselves i.e. to uh, take out the boats on the beach. I think it would be a a different discussion, but I'm not entirely convinced it would be any easier because for nations to make that decision in that context is very different. You know, for NATO to do it, countries to join NATO, join a military alliance and are absolutely certain about what it is they're doing and why they are there. For the European Union, it's different. The position of Ireland, for example, is very different to the position of, say, Poland. They would all be an agreement about the Ukraine war and the importance of supporting Ukraine, but the methods they might choose to do it could be different.
1: Yeah. Well, moving on to the chapter on Egypt, uh, the fall of Morsi and the emergence of El Sisi, uh, this is a real page-turner, especially your description of being taken to see the deposed president. Could you could you take us through that episode and what led to it?
0: So people remember, I think, something we called the Arab Spring, which was begun in Tunisia when a young vegetable and fruit seller was unable to set up his stall and sell his goods, being harassed by the local police who wanted money, wanted a permit that didn't exist. And he eventually set fire to himself and over two terrible weeks, tragically, gradually died. And it created the beginnings of a really strong reaction, not just in Tunisia, but something that spread across parts of the Middle East, of the Arab world, and that at that point, it was difficult to see where it would end, or how it would end. And in Egypt, it was especially a strong, determined opportunity, as people saw it, to remove the President Mubarak, and to create what many people thought would happen, which was a strong democracy, a, a democracy that would see, for the first time in Egypt's history, elected presidents who actually left office while they were still able to walk and move around. In other words, this was no longer gonna be jobs for life. And I cover this in the book, but the the result of the first elections was the elections of Mohammed Morsi, who was um, a representative of the Muslim Brotherhood, created a government. It became extremely unpopular. It was regarded as authoritarian, it was regarded as failing to provide what the people had wanted. And eventually he was removed by a coalition that spanned from the Christians on the one hand to the Grandy Man on the other, to the uh, key political organizations and of course to the military. And he was removed physically from office and the creation of a sort of coalition was put in place. It was very challenging, but I recall very vividly being in Egypt just before this happened and being extremely alarmed that Egypt could collapse into some kind of sort of civil war, that there was you know, 20 million signatures on a petition demanding that at least President Wolsey do something, even if he didn't actually leave. And it was clear that they were not going to take any action that was going to support what people wanted. In the course of this, then, he has disappeared and I've gone back to Egypt. And for the EU, it was important that we knew what had happened to him. Because in a way, one could argue very strongly that being elected is not a sufficient event of itself it's what you do when you're elected and if you completely fail and you're unprepared to move aside then if all the forces across the spectrum uh, support a change is that and this is what the chapter talks about really is that a coup or not a coup but it was important to know what had happened to him and so uh, in the course of one of my visits uh, the now president, El sisi then, who was a defence minister, said that he would arrange for me to go and see him. And the story tells of what it was like to set off in a helicopter in the nighttime with one person, Christian, my, my uh, colleague with me. We weren't allowed to take anything, bags, phones, nothing. We just went in the clothes we stood in and going off into the night and then to be driven out to find him and then to come back and and tell everyone we'd seen him and this is the first time that I've written or said very much about what actually it was like to do that um uh, I sort of I was perfectly safe I never worried about that but it was kind of strange to be in a car with doors that wouldn't open and where the windows were blacked out with um rubbish bags or black rubbish bags across them So at least in theory, I couldn't see. I could, of course, see through the front windscreen, but not to the side or the back.
1: But you you deduce it's near Alexandria, as I remember. But uh, reading the chapter, I was very struck at how quickly the HRVP had become a pivotal player as a mediator, Um, and this becomes even more obvious in the Serbia, Kosovo, and Iranian uh, chapters. Were you surprised at how quickly the role um, developed?
0: Well, there were all different circumstances, Tim, and that was what was also interesting about it. But in a way, it were, you know, we were partly looking, particularly in that time, for ways in which the EU could do things that were European as opposed to what individual member states could do. You know, that we have the big member states of that time, of, of which the, the Britain was one, um, and we had around the table of 28, experienced knowledge, political connections and history with the entire world one way or another. So there was a lot that individual countries could do and I was always looking for things that Europe could do. And that's a combination in the context of some of the negotiations we did. We were the, we were the big pull, the big pull of soft power of wanting to be part of the European Union, Serbia-Kosovo, meant that they could more easily do difficult things because there was a big prize at the end of it, at least in theory. Mm. So you have that sort of pull factor. And, of course, a recognition from the... um, Uh, from the countries in that region, especially, that they would seek uh, to be part of the EU as as a way of ensuring their own security and and hopefully peace and prosperity. So it was particularly the case that in the neighbourhood that we call, that became part of the Arab Spring world, that. The European Union was going to be the key player in terms of development and support, especially economically. And economics was a huge driver of what was going on in that region that uh, made it extremely important for the possibility of raising economies and developing economies which was going to be essential for whatever government came next, because that was what people wanted. Um, and I think you, you, you know, the EU was that sort of big soft power, soft in a in a sense that it wasn't a military alliance per se, but not soft in the context that what it did was was not very important. It was the biggest economic bloc in the world, and it was willing to engage in that kind of process and that kind of support. And I suppose finally. It didn't really have, we we didn't have ulterior motives. And a lot of countries, for good or ill, there's a suspicion about why are they doing this? You know, there's history or there's a a, a sense of um, nations that you suspect will want something at the end of it. And what the EU is, because it's this big grouping of countries, it, it doesn't have that that flavor
1: to it yes I, I um in your chapter on libya um what jumped out there was was the limits of soft power you actually write um quote, our focus on the display of hard power was not matched by long-term planning for the use of soft power that should have followed uh, and that's that's clearly true but it, it did make me think about that the European Union is keen to use soft power in permissive environments, but they but they're very reluctant to apply it in 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 a, in a case like Libya where there's essentially anarchy. It, it, could you? I mean, is that the right way to see it?
0: It's one way to see it. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would agree with that. I, I think I would take a slightly different view, which is that. When you're confronted with a crisis, which was that there was a fear that um, Gaddafi was going to take troops into Benghazi and potentially massacre people there. And Benghazi had been uh, the site in in the country of uh, where people would gather who opposed him. You could tell that because infrastructure, he would give money to places which were basically doing what he wanted. And Benghazi didn't get resources. But the roads to Benghazi were amazing because he wanted to be able to get there if there was trouble. And um, confronted with the, the possibility that he could move in and he could try and kill the people who'd gathered the transitional council, as they called themselves, the people who potentially could form a different kind of government in the event that he went. France and Britain, particularly, wanted to act to protect them. And so there is a challenge of the urgency of the moment means that you have to make decisions. Mm. But the problem is that, uh, and, and as you know, the book is called, and then what? We, we have to also think about the and then what mm. moment. And my concern was that by doing that, important though it was, We also had to be clear what what it was we were offering. Were we offering military support for regime change, for the removal of Gaddafi? Or were we simply saying to him, you can't do this, this particular horrible thing, but we're not trying to do more than that? Hmm. And in the course of the chapter, you'll see that people's views about it moved from the original ideas of this uh, preventing this was really important to being about well actually he's got to go and and in doing that that gave heart to the people in Libya that there was going to be significant support from uh, the west if we call it that not just the west but from other countries in the region to be able to help them and there was quite a lot of that but The other bit of the and then what is, well, what happens after that case? What what happens next? You know, how does this country move from being a repressed dictatorship to being a a, a nice liberal democracy? It's taken some of us hundreds of years to get there. How are we going to help them get there? And there were some very basic issues that were difficult to address. For example, the borders were porous. People were just coming across a country that had never been allowed by Gaddafi to hold guns beyond the military it was awash with them. They were everywhere. You know, you'd know, you walk into a street and people would be firing guns everywhere. Uh, it was very dangerous, not least, but it was just everywhere. And there was the beginning of groups coming together to try and establish what they thought the future of the country should be. And there was no real authority. And that meant trying to help by putting border management in, putting teams of people in who could secure the borders, or helping them to get the guns off the streets, or helping them to work out what the key things governments should do, which requires you to put people on the ground. You can only put people on the ground when a government, when somebody in authority says, yes, please, you can't just arrive and put people on the ground, that's called an invasion. And so it was then very, very difficult as the country spiralled quite quickly to be able to get anyone in authority. And that was a problem for the UN, it was a problem for the EU. And we didn't have the means, because we couldn't do it without the authority, to then really help in ways that I think would have been extremely valuable at the beginning. It also played into what happened, of course, in terms of of uh, Russia who had abstained on the vote on Libya and then were deeply critical that actually they had not been given the correct information that indeed this was about regime change, which is what they'd been assured it wasn't. And that affected a lot of things. And I think the spiral into chaos in Libya affected the potential for change in Syria and the, the, the perception of what we were trying to do, which I think, we still kind of grapple with a bit
1: now. Yeah. Well, moving on, for readers like me who enjoy in-the-room descriptions of top-level negotiations, I recommend the chapters on Serbia, Kosovo and Iran. Just starting with Serbia, Kosovo, was this the moment you felt you'd come into your own as a mediator and negotiator? Because you, you really did lead that.
0: It was a moment when I felt that we were able to prove that there was a value to this European idea of collaborating together on foreign policy to solve problems. And there were two specific reasons I felt that. The first was, for Europe, our role is often to kind of be part of something that the United States is leading on. Or the US as this huge power is often in Uh, in the front line and Europe is kind of beside it. But it's often, not always, but it's often the case that the U.S. is playing a bigger role. And in the Western Balkans, during the wars that happened there, the U.S. was critical to being able to bring some level of peace to the region. And there was criticism at the time that Europe had not played the role that it could or should bearing in mind its size and importance. So I wanted to sort of prove both to our colleagues across the Atlantic and to Europe that we could do something, and that we could do something that was unique about the role of the EU and the role of the high representative in doing that. And so the Serbia-Kosovo, which was more of a mediation than a negotiation really, because it was their agreement. I was always mindful that they had to agree, they had to sell the agreement, and therefore it had to be something they believed in. It was not going to be something imposed by Europe. But we also, at the same time, had to make sure it was something that the European countries would agree to. So I had this dual sort of discussion going on. One was between the parties to get them to agree, and the other was with the 28 to make sure that what we did agree was sufficient for them to do what I had promised the parties would happen, which was basically bringing them closer to Europe, either through opening negotiations on membership or uh, getting better trade agreements and so on. So it it was kind of, I was negotiating in two different places at the same time. Uh, It was especially interesting because when I began it, I think those who had dealt with the region, I think, thought I probably wasn't going to be able to do this, mm. that it would be too difficult. And indeed, I was by no means certain until the day it happened that it would.
1: Yes, and a lot of the issues you describe are are very live today. Uh, are you how confident do you feel that the the current problems can be resolved?
0: Current problems can be resolved, but it takes the political will to resolve them. It's always been the case. And there are different that leaders now in Kosovo, and to be fair to them, they were always very sceptical and quite opposed to the process of negotiation that we did. They were opposition party, now in government. Um, And for Serbia, well, Serbia has always tried to balance its relationships between Europe, Russia, China, and so on, and is quite sceptical about the leadership, I think, in Kosovo. So it's absolutely down to the political will to get it done. There is no reason why, in the end, this couldn't get there if all the parties, and that includes the EU as well, are prepared to play their part. And there is a lot of concern, I think, in both Serbia and Kosovo, that the ultimate objective, which is to become member states of the European Union, will be denied them, by an EU that is growing sceptical about enlargement, especially in the Western Balkans. And they look at what's happening in terms of the offer to Ukraine, I think with great interest, because that sort of potentially opens a door for them. But they are nervous that in the end, they'll do everything they should do. at great unpopularity in their populations with the holding out of, you know what you get from for this, even though it's difficult for you to swallow, is going to be membership of the EU. Only to find it's taken away. Yeah. They also, by the way, use that as an excuse not to do things too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, just before we come to Ukraine, I, I um, will we'll definitely quickly touch on on Iran. I mean, it's a very very interesting chapter, um, partly because of so much so much of the waiting around that, that so many of you did while the Iranians and the US were, were negotiating bilaterally. What struck me was that John Kerry seemed very deliberately to bring you back in as, as a closer. How, how do you see, looking back, how, how do you characterise your role in, in, the, in those negotiations?
0: So I think I had two specific roles. The first was to chair all of the meetings between the six countries and with a very dedicated team uh, led by Helga Schmidt for the main part of my time in office, who's now running the OSCE in Vienna, mm. to get them all to a common position that would hold. It's worth thinking that, or remembering, really, that of the six countries, what each wanted as proof that Iran's nuclear program was um, peaceful, was different. So what China and Russia were prepared to accept and what France and the US were prepared to accept were quite different. And if you like, on the sort of spectrum, the Americans needed the most, followed by the French, followed by the the Brits and then Germany, Um, and the Russians and Chinese, would probably have settled for less uh, in that context. Um, but we needed a position that everybody agreed that it was never a done deal until we had what everyone needed. Um, and that was a process that we kind of brokered and worked on. Now they all talked to each other and there was a lot of bilateral trial lots of discussions going on, but fundamentally, I saw that as an important part of what we did, was to keep that process in play and make sure that we regularly brought people together to check and confirm and add to make sure that we had a solid position that nobody was going to kind of renege on. And that stuck all the way through, even through our relations with Russia deteriorating dramatically in the Ukraine crisis. The other was to with the person who chaired the meetings with the Iranians directly and to spend time later on especially talking bilaterally with the Iranian team on behalf of the others. Um, And that was partly about their growing confidence that that I would represent them effectively. But also when, when we brought the American discussions formally back into the negotiations, it was important to both sides that this was not just a bilateral deal and was not seen to be a bilateral deal because it wasn't. I never underestimate the importance of the American team. They were amazing. Uh, and it was right that they were talking with the Iranians very quietly because everybody else was able to talk with them openly. Mm-hmm. So this was important. But it was also crucial to them, and I think to the Iranians and to all of us that we brought it all back together at the end. And so for me, my job was a bit of glue in cementing all of these relationships together and then doing some of the work such that we got to a point where we got as much as was possible except for the bits that only the Americans could do because only the Americans could discuss their own sanctions, Mm -hmm. could make decisions and could report those back to Washington and be in touch with Washington. And so the very final bits of the interim agreement were down to this extraordinary group who did a fantastic job, but did it on behalf of everyone at that point.
1: Finally, Ukraine. Uh, what jumped out here was Lukashenko's duplicity always playing both sides between the EU and, and Russia, but also your description of the deep anger and sense of betrayal felt by Putin and Lavrov towards what they considered to be Western, Western Ukrainians. Look, looking back a year now, did you, as things were building up uh, on the border, did, were you one of the people who thought that, that there could be a full-scale invasion based on your experience?
0: No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I was really surprised. I thought that what Russia would probably do was use the military build-up to consolidate their position in the east of Ukraine, in the areas that they considered particularly looked to Russia, Russian-speaking Ukrainians, um, the Donbas it's referred to, that they would probably try and take more of that and can certainly consolidate what they had. I did not expect them at that point to try and take Kyiv, to try and uh, take the whole of the country. Okay,
1: well, as usual, since this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to recommend two, uh, one broadly in their field and one personal choice. So, Catherine, what have you chosen?
0: So I um, wanted to choose a book that I think is so important for anyone who's interested in in, uh, foreign policy. And it's an, an older book. It's called The Essence of Decision, and it's by Graham Allison, who's a professor at Harvard. And The great thing about it is it's a book that takes the events um, of the Cuban missile crisis from an American perspective and describes the three models of decision-making that you could apply to what was going on. And I love it because back to your point, Tim, about process, and I know you like process too. This is the ultimate process book because you see how things can happen. It's, is it just about people who are in the room where it happens, the kind of classic Hamilton mm. idea that it's just who can negotiate what. Is it about all of the organizational underpinning these bureaucracies that that really create the uh, the tensions and and the potential for things to go well or go badly, or is it just put two leaders in a room at the classic summit and they will do the deal. And there's lots of, I I mean, there's lots more in it than that, but it's a great book. So if you're interested in foreign policy, you've not read it, I recommend it just to get that sense of the process. And you have a second book? I do. So um, it's still a bit foreign policy, but it's a novel, which is Ken Follett's book, Never. And what I like about what Ken has written in it is that he takes this idea that things can happen almost by accident, that you can have a build-up of different things happening in different parts of the world that seem to be disconnected, but finally connect in catastrophic ways. And my experience in foreign policy is, is that unless we really start tackling some of these crises before they become crises, and the bubbling up of problems and issues that exist all over the world, you could see how quickly these could spring up and sort of join together to create a crisis. It's a great read. It's a great yarn. And I really recommend it.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, neither of those have been chosen before. So thank you for that. Um, today, I've been talking to Catherine Ashton about And Then What?, published this week by Ellerton Thompson. Thank you very much for coming on, Catherine.
0: Thank you, Tim.